Amen. Well, let's just have a seat. Uh, we really have some good news this morning and that um, maybe some of you are wondering, probably you've already heard, uh, Jeremy Good came in view of a call last week to our East Campus to be our East Campus pastor, and they voted him in in a, in a secret ballot, a written ballot, uh, unanimously, and uh, I think that we can, we can clap for that. It's fine. <clears throat> I saw Don Jacobs in here a little bit earlier, I think, somewhere, and uh, I'm sure that he, yep, there he is right over here. Goes out to East Campus, but also chairman of our deacons, so he kind of goes back and forth. But y'all are happy about that, aren't you? Yeah? Now, here's the thing, and I was hoping to get a better round of applause because what I'm about to tell you is the bad news. He's a Tennessee volunteer fan. Oh, got a lot of people. How many of you, from, how many of you are from Tennessee? Raise your hand. Look at all these people. Wow. Got four or five. Got one guy has four or five hands going up over here. Nudging his neighbor. How many of you, you know, I know um, you get tired of this on Facebook, but how many of you are from Alabama? Okay, some of you, a few. Well, you know, raise your hand then if you're from Florida and you're backslidden. Okay, well, you're just the people I want to talk to today. No, but Jeremy is uh, coming. He's going to be here actually November the 6th, that Sunday. And then um, he'll be in our pulpit here on one of the, uh, I think around Thanksgiving weekend, and so you get a chance to meet him and uh, hear him a little bit. I want us to turn to Luke chapter 15, one of the most familiar stories in all the Bible. Some of you think to yourself, I've heard this passage preached so many times. I remember um, when I was in Georgia as a student at Coal Falls College, uh, we would go out to Alto Prison, and it was a prison for younger guys, you know, and I'd say 18 to 25. And uh, we, we would go there, and one Sunday, one Sunday when I was preaching out there, there was a sign on the pulpit that says, please don't preach on the prodigal son. So I guess getting different preachers in there every time, you know, where they were there in prison, uh, it was a constant message that they were hearing. And somewhere in this story, we can probably see ourselves. And I think that's why it's so popular uh, of a story, not only to preach on and teach on, but also to read as well. And the question I want to answer this morning is, what can I do when the world steals my child. Now, many of you are that child this morning. You are that young person, perhaps. But others are struggling with things because you feel like, hey, you know, my, my son, my daughter was saved, or I thought they were saved at the age of six, seven, or eight, and they've been raised in church, and now where are they? What are they doing? And I can't, I can't pull them back in. They just can't seem to get the victory there. I'm praying and praying, and nothing seems to be happening. And maybe they weren't prepared for that philosophy class at the university. Maybe they weren't prepared for the onslaught of temptation that they were going to receive in high school. But you feel like perhaps you've done the best you could, but now what? Now that they've strayed, perhaps now that they're even older, what can I do about it then? We're in a series of messages on answering life's toughest questions. And you were asked as a church, as a community as well, if you had one question to ask God, what would it be? And this question came out of that. What do I do when the world steals my child? Well, we look at these parables, and in Luke chapter 15, uh, if you just open up the chapter, it says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to Jesus. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, they were not rejoicing for people 
like ourselves, come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. They thought they were the righteous ones, and they deserved all of Jesus' attention, and he was giving it to sinners. And, and the parables, these three parables, are really about us. We're, we're the elder brother in these parables and the fact that we are, we are not rejoicing enough on people coming to know the Lord. We, we're not taking personal maybe responsibility for our community and the lostness of that community. And that's what Jesus is speaking to. He has a parable of the lost sheep, lost coin, and finally the lost son. But also in this parable of the lost son, are some guidelines that we can look at in order to see what we need to do in order to reach those who have strayed from the Lord. And so as we open up this passage, I want us to look at three things, really. Our challenge, our objective, what are we trying to do? What are we trying to really accomplish? And, and thirdly, his guidance. And just a few things that God gives us in this scripture that we can rest upon. First of all, our challenge. Let's look at verse 11. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, <coughs> Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went into a far country, into a distant country. And there he began to squander his, squander his estate with loose living. So he wasted it. This rebellious life is a wasted life. So he wasted it. And so what was the condition here? What is our condition as well? Well, the older brother in this story gets two-thirds of the estate. That was the custom back in the New Testament times. The older one gets two-thirds, the younger one gets one-third. And the younger one's saying to his father, I just want mine right now, is really saying, Father, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because you only got one-third of the estate, two-thirds of the estate, after the father had passed. And so we find this father, who is a symbol of our heavenly father, being very gracious to his son by giving him his inheritance very, very early. And so we look here at a picture, really, of a rebellious heart. A heart that's saying, I, I know what I need to do, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to flee for my freedom. And so that's the condition. Now, here's the problem with that. We're all in rebellion. Every single one of us are, in fact, this is a story of all of mankind coming to the Father. And we are in rebellion. So on a 1 to 10 scale, here we are, maybe because we're a believer, 1 to 10 scale, 10 being the most rebellious, uh, you know, we have some 1s and 2s in this room. We have some threes and fours and fives and sixes, and we have maybe some eights and nines. And these prodigals, those who have left our home and rebelled against the faith, we look at them and, oh, they're nines and tens. And I'm just a four. Now, what I want them to do is come back to being a four. And so it's difficult for us to even talk about this, and it's difficult for us to really uh, throw, throw our, uh, our senses around this because we too are in rebellion. It's caused from a natural selfishness. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so this being a story of salvation, it's also a story about someone losing their home, their community, and regaining it, a restoration of that community. It's been said that we're, we're always longing, and I believe this is true, to find a home. This young man had a home that he was not satisfied with. 
But there's a longingness in the heart where we can go where our needs are met, where we can just be ourselves, where we can be accepted for who we are. Adam had that in the garden. What happened? What was the tension there? Oh, on the one hand, I'm longing for the home. In fact, we can see this all over, even, even with little, little children. You move little bitty children from place to place to place to place, and, and they're never, never going to really feel settled. My, uh, my older son, who's going to go off and plant a church uh, here in uh, a couple months, um, decided to move in with us and by invitation upstairs. The upstairs is completely vacant. You know, we're, we're without children at home right now. And so uh, they moved up there with their three children in order to save some money. And, of course, the, it's very difficult for some of you um, people that are, have apartments for rent. You won't rent them unless it's for a year, and they weren't going to be here for a year. So he's moved upstairs. But right after they got in, my three-year-old granddaughter, who's got a lot of personality, goes to the bottom of the steps, looks at us, and says, I'm going home. Opens up the gates, goes upstairs. She's <clears throat> really confused, confused on where her home is. She's, trying, she's looking for a new place, a new place where she can settle down and say, this is mine. Adam had that, but he also yearned for freedom, freedom from law, freedom to do his own will, freedom to do what he wants to do. And so Adam sinned against God, and he, and he gained his freedom, but he lost his home. And so we find here a great tension that's involved. Martin Hedinger said, all people are characterized by homelessness. We seek out a place. We seek out a home where we can be us. We can just be ourselves and feel a sense of a, of a presence there that we can, we can embrace. But rebelliousness really is, is the heart of selfishness. It's saying, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. 1 Samuel 15, 23 tells us really about the dangers of rebelliousness. It says, for rebellion is a sin of divination or witchcraft, and insubordination is an iniquity or idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king, talking about King Saul. And so right here we find the rebellion is like the sin of divination or witchcraft. Why is that? Because when we rebel against God, which is the very heart of sin, what we're saying is, I'm opening myself up to outside forces. I'm opening myself up to Satan. It's as though you're practicing witchcraft. That's why you see the look of rebellion on someone's face. There's an anger there. There's something that's the anger now is not just about losing your temper. The anger is a part of the soul. There's something in you that has bitterness and anger, and you get angry about a lot of different things. Look at where, where our country is today. It's infiltrating into the families, into the churches, because why? There's an anger there because there's a rebellion says, I want my freedom, but now there's a restlessness there saying, I don't have a home. There's a homelessness about me. And so when we're looking at this, we understand what we're up against. When someone, and if you're a three or a four, and you're looking at a 9 or a 10 and saying, we need to do something to bring them back into the fold, you need to realize that there's a tension there. They want a home. They want their freedom at the same time. And there's a choice to be made. And so what is our objective? Look with me in verse um, 14. 
Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in this country, in that country. And he began to be in want. He began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now, here is a picture of a man going as low as he could go. Because nothing is worse than a Jewish boy feeding pigs. Pig, the pig was an unclean item. And he was down there, and he, it, says, it, says, it goes on to say, um, and he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him any, anything to him. He had learned something here. I, if it was my father, if it was five years, ten years, we don't know how long it had gone on. It's, just, it's a parable. It's a story. But he said, you know, years ago, if I wanted these pods, I'd just take it, just like I took my dad. But there's a brokenness here, and there's a feeling now I can't rebel. I'm going to lose the only job that I can get. I cannot even eat the husk that the hogs are eating because I'll get in trouble and I'll be fired. Boy, that's as low as you can go, isn't it? But lessons are being learned. And so we look at this and we find in verse 17, he, he came to his senses. He woke up. Suddenly, there's something that ignited all this. And it was repentance. He just came to his senses. And he thought to himself, I've been seeking this freedom, seeking this freedom, but yet, wow, I need a home. What I left, I left what I thought I would find. I want the home. I'm a, hum, I'm a homeless, I'm really a homeless person now. I have nothing. And so we can find that there's a desperation. How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. A totally, total different change in attitude altogether. On the one hand, years before, he says, just give me my money. I'm on my way, on my way to fun, freedom, and finances. That's all I need. And boy, it's going to be a great, great, wonderful life. But it wasn't, was it? It wasn't the wonderful life. The sin was pleasurable for a season, but now he'd come to the end of his rope, and now he has a different attitude altogether. He says, I'm not even worthy to be called your son. Just hire me on like one of the hired servants. He was repentant. Now, I know that's a bad word, not just in church, but anywhere. Because repentance is like, you, you, you think about a guy holding up a sign, repent, you know, the end is coming, you know, and uh, walking around on the streets. But repentance means that you're going one direction, you're following your own way in rebellion, and you're going to now turn the other way and go toward God. What's going to ignite, <coughs> excuse me, what's going to ignite repentance what, or rather, coming back to God, what's going to ignite all of a sudden you wake up and you want to love God again and you want his love? What's going to ignite it? It's going to be repentance. And only God can grant that. 2 Timothy 2.25 is just one of the verses that says this. With gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. How do you come to your senses? How do you come to your, out of your delirium? God has to provide that for you. But notice the condition here that this young man is in in order to get granted repentance. A humble heart. I was wrong, 
and here I'm standing, and I was seeking out freedom, but where I really wanted, I wanted to be home. I didn't want to be homeless in my spirit. But this is hard to do. This is hard for some of you to do. Some of you are sitting on a four, five, six, seven in the, in the scale of rebellion in your own heart. You're still in church, and you think I'm okay. You see, why? Why, why is it so hard to come to the place of repentance? Because the things that we need to repent of usually are blind spots in our life, the things that we can't see. We rationalize everything. One, one, uh, Tim Keller said it this way, the human heart runs on denial the way my car runs on gas. We just deny and deny and deny. But what's it really coming from? When we sin against God, we really approach things in two ways. One, our sin is first and foremost against God. Please understand that it's so important to the story. Psalm 51, David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's also against others. It's first vertical and then horizontal. Oftentimes, repentance comes through a loss, comes through pain, personal pain. What comes to the place we, we say to ourselves, it's just easier for me to repent than it is to remain as I am. It's less painful to turn from my ways than it is to remain in the hog pen of life, to be away from God. Repentance means I've, I've come to realize I've broken God's heart. Let me give you an illustration of this. A couple walks into uh, a counselor, and, uh, and he says, Doctor, my wife is leaving me. There's nothing I can do to talk her out of it. It's, it's, it's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I just can't even, she won't even, she's not even reasonable. Well, she's got a laundry list of stuff that maybe he needs to correct. And uh, he thinks to himself, wow, you know, I've heard this, I've heard this, I've heard this, but wow, now it's really clicking. And he thinks in order to keep my wife, I'm going to have to change one, two, three, four, five things. So he begins to change. They keep coming back to counseling, and she says, wow. You know, he really, he really is sincere. You know, he really is changing. And, uh, and so they, they leave the counselor and uh, go off and live their life. And within just weeks, maybe months at the most, he's right back doing what he was doing before. In fact, even worse. Because now he's thinking, I'm, I'm tired of living this way. I'm tired of doing what she wants me to do. The problem was he was never repentant. He was just trying to change temporarily, and maybe even in his heart he felt like, I really can do this. Why? Because I love this woman. What he failed to understand is repentance is really toward God first. It's first toward God. Repentance is breaking the heart, or rather it's realizing that you have broken the heart of the Lord. And so you come to that marriage counseling situation, and you think, wow, I'm supposed to be the spiritual leader of my home. I'm supposed to do this. I'm like, wow, God, I have really failed you. And God just doing what I want to do. And, and now you change and repent toward God. Now there can be real change in your life. What we fail to realize is that our objective, the goal, is not for the prodigal, the lost son or daughter, to come back to you but to come back to God. And if they've never been with God in the first place, 
that opens the door to other things as well. The goal is for them to repent and come back to God. If they come back to God, they'll come back to you. If they don't come back to God, they'll never fully come back to you. They may be there because they need a home. They may need, be there uh, for you for a while because they need financial support. But sooner or later, they're going to do the same thing they've done before. Why? Because nothing has changed on the inside. So our prayers don't need to be centered around. God, may my prodigal, my lost son come back to me, but rather let them come back to God. So what are some guidelines here that we can gather? The objective, get them to come back to God. So how do you do that? Verse 20. In fact, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. This is a, this is a picture of God reeling in, you might say, I don't, maybe that's not the right term, but reeling in a person that doesn't know Christ. And he says he saw him, felt compassion, and he ran. The only place in the Bible God is pictured running and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. The first thing you need to do is release them. All the way back to the beginning of the story, the father was approached. The younger said, give me my money. father said, here, I'm releasing you. Now, I know this is the hardest thing that you, you and I need to do. The hardest thing when we see someone that we love so dearly away from the Lord is to just say, God, you take them. That's hard. We want to bail them out. You know, it's, it's amazing that I've, I've seen in my ministry, most of the time, if, if, there's a, if there's a child that's the prodigal, it is the younger one. Why? Well, we treat, we tend to treat our youngest, not as our youngest child, but as our baby. And they always remain that baby. We always meet their need, meet their need, meet their, and we get trapped. Because now if we don't meet their need, they're going to be homeless. They're going to be on the street. Hard to do. Hard. Difficult. So here's the question. Are you willing to release the, to God the most precious things in your life? Because no, nobody is more precious to you than someone you love. Are you willing to do that? Here was a man who was willing to do that and not, and not simply just come and bail him out all the time. You never see the father come and say, oh, I heard he's feeding the hogs. Let me go and rescue him. He was waiting for him to come back to him. Number two, never burn bridges. Verses 18 and 19 shows you this young man's attitude. I can go back. It's still open. I know that he struggled. I know the devil talked to him every single step of the way. You look at you. You're, you're, you smell of swine. You smell of pig. You think your, your father's going to take you back. You've squandered his living. You've embarrassed him. He no longer, you've compromised his testimony. You, you know, what is your brother going to say about you? Every single step of the way, but also in the back of his mind, he knows, he knows, he knows. My father has not burned those bridges. I was talking to a pastor a couple of months ago, and he was sharing with me uh, about 
uh, his daughter, not in any detail, just about her. And I said, well, how do you handle that? And he says, well, first thing is I never, I told her, I told her, I'll never burn a bridge that one day we might both can cross. Questions are asked to me sometimes, um, well, my daughter's marrying a, a young man that I don't approve of. Should I even go to the wedding? Well, if you don't go to the wedding, first of all, your protest is not going to ma manipulate them. They're still going to get married. And by you not going, you're burning that bridge. That's what I'm talking about. Those kind of things. No, you don't approve, but you're willing, you're willing to do, you're willing to reach out in some way to say, I'm not going to burn that bridge. Number three, you need to prepare for their return. Notice what it says in verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe. The robe is a symbol of honor. And he says, put a ring on his hand. That's a symbol of authority. That's like the credit card. Give, give him the credit card, the, the, you know, the MasterCard. And sandals on his feet. Shoes are a symbol of sonship. No, I don't want him to be a slave. He's my son. Okay, he doesn't have the one-third of the state anymore. He spent all of his money, spent all of his inheritance. But no, I welcome him back into the home. How could he do that? How could he do that when some other people find it so difficult? Here their son or daughter comes back and they leave again. Because we need to prepare. There could be something um, in your home, in your life, could be something that has caused your prodigal to leave in the first place. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that there is, because all we can do is influence our kids. It's all we can do. We can't live their life for them. But sometimes there's maybe the helicopter hovering over their life. Maybe there's some sort of abuse, but probably maybe some overprotectiveness, some I'm going to run your life as long as you're in my home. And so I ask you, as you're preparing, one of the things is you have to change, you have to repent yourself. In a sense, you are in the pig sty as well because not your own life, but your emotions are there. Because someone you love has left and not come home as yet. This man was prepared. He was prepared to receive him back. And then you receive him. Number four, you receive them home. Notice here, no restitution was made. There was no rebuke. There was no I told you so. It's like the, the uh, Randy Travis song. Uh, suppose I called you, and this is between a, a man and a woman, but suppose I called you up tonight and told you that I loved you. And suppose I said, I want to come back home. And suppose I cried and said, I think I finally learned my lesson and I'm tired of spending all my time alone. Would you tell me that you love me too? Or will we cry together? Or would you simply laugh at me and say, I told you so. I told you so. I told you one day you'd come crawling back and ask me to take you in. I told you so, but you had to go. Now I found somebody new, and you'll never break my heart again. He reaches down and pets his hound dog, you know. It's always a hound dog in a, in a country song. But, look, son, I told you. 
You know, here, here you've squandered all my money. You've ruined my testimony. What are you going to do about that? There was none of that. I just receive you home. Because really what you're saying is, look, I'm a three in rebellion against God. I struggle with that. I have to ask forgiveness every day for things that I've done. I still rebel, and I have to repent. Now, because you're not a three, you're going to have to pay for it. Now, if you were a three, you wouldn't have to make restitution. I wouldn't say I told you so. But because you're a more rebellious than I am, then, therefore, you've got to make things right. No, none of that. Just come on home. Come on back. I want to see you again. I want you to live here. I'm willing to make the changes necessary. And so what do you do in the meantime? There you are. You've let them go. You have <clears throat> placed them on the altar before the Lord and say, God, you just take it. I'm, I'm out of this saving business, rescuing business. And that's hard. When they've lived that way, they've depended on you for a long, long time to rescue them. Now you're not going to be the rescuer. So what do you do? You pray. Now that's not in this passage, but certainly I think it's understood considering uh, prayer is all throughout the book of Luke and Jesus teaches us to pray. We pray about all things. Listen to this. We, we need to, to pray in verse 32. Let's read this. This is the conclusion of, of everything. He says to his elder brother, but we had to celebrate and rejoice for this, your brother of yours, was dead as we got to live, was lost, and now he's found. Wouldn't you love to say that? Wouldn't you love to say that? I'm going to challenge him to pray three or four hints here in prayer. Number one, you need to pray for repentance, leading. Are you ready for this? Brace yourself. Leading to salvation. So that doesn't apply to mine. You know, he was saved back when she was saved back when she was seven years old. I remember walking out. Well, he was saved as a teenager. He was 14 years old. He was at a camp. He gave his life to Christ. He was bad. I was there. I was there when he got baptized. There's been a lot of talk of why millennials are leaving the church. And there are various reasons. Um, they are struggling with sin in their life, even as Christians. They're not ready, they were not ready for that kind of temptation they faced when they got out into the world. They weren't ready for that philosophy class. But one millennial pastor, after hearing, reading so many articles, it's the church's fault, it's the church's fault. It, it can't be the church's fault. As I said before, there are so many churches. You, could, you can go to a high church where they wear the robes and sing the hymns of um, <clears throat> 10 centuries ago. Seriously. Or you can go to some that are just bizarre. And everything in between. So... You, you, there's choices out there right here in Orlando. He said the major reason why is that they're not saved. They've never been regenerated. They've never been born again. So how do you know? Well, you don't know. I mean, you can guess. You can say, well, he had a life change or whatever. And, and so I know that he's just going back to what he shouldn't be. But just in case, I'm saying you need to pray, God, would you open up the eyes of my daughter? Would you open up her ears to understanding? God, would you send somebody in her life that would bring the gospel message to her heart? Would you bring some, a friend in her life that she can see the gospel 
come to life? Would you draw her to yourself? God, would you save her? And unless you're willing to realize that, you're praying for the wrong stuff. You're praying for the wrong things. You pray. If your child is not walking with the Lord, you, in their rebellion, they're, they're up at 7, 8, 9, 10, you need to pray for their salvation. But then you say, well, I'm not sure if they're saved or not. I think they are. Then pray also for a rededication that God would draw them in. Pray also for their, number three, pray for their protection. Pray that the world that has stolen your child would not want them anymore. You know, that's scriptural. Here in the book of, um, the Old Testament book, Hosea. Hosea had a story. He's a prophet of Israel. And God told him, he says, okay, Hosea, go out and marry a harlot. That's what it says, King James Version anyway, prostitute. And so why would God do that? Well, because he wanted, Hosea wanted to. He wanted to go out and marry a certain young lady that he had met by the name of Gomer. I know, not the most beautiful name in the world. I wouldn't, I don't know of any. <clears throat> I've only known one Gomer. His last name was Pyle. <clears throat> but he said, go out and marry this girl. And he did. He had three children. Two of them, we know, were not even his. She left him for a life of temple prostitution. And he prayed. He said, God, I pray a hedge of thorns around her. Now, what is that? He was praying a hedge of thorns that she would live, her soul and her heart would live with thorns sticking out this way. That those who wanted her would no longer want her. That they would be repelled by her. We pick up the story a little later where she is on the block of temple prostitutes being sold from slavery owner to slavery owner. The Bible says Hosea looks up on the podium of the platform where she's being sold and she was naked. She was, her hair was ratty. She was skinny. She was impoverished. And people were laughing at her. Nobody wanted her. And he bought her out of slavery. A picture of God buying us out of slavery to sin. And he restored her to the home. And, <clears throat> I'm sorry. She, re he, she was restored to the home with the children. And made to be respectable again. Now he could have said, you know, you embarrassed me. People have been talking about me. That, that prophet, he can't even keep his own home going. His, his wife cheated on him, and he was the last to find out. What kind of prophet is he? Ruined his testimony. But he prayed for her and said, God, I'm willing to take her back. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm willing to take her back. But God, would you bring her back? And he protected her. What about your children? So, well, my, my child's out here doing this. My, you know, they're, they're around the worldly people. Now, they become the worldly people. They become the predators for worldly people. They're, they're recruiting people for worldly Why don't you pray a hedge of thorns around them? I know of a couple that did that. I shared this story with them uh, back years ago, some 30, 40 years ago. And they prayed a hedge of thorns around 
their teenager who had left home about 18, 19 years old, and they prayed a hedge of thorns, and he, he was thrown out of his apartment by his roommates. And he was telling me the story. I, I didn't tell him that I told his parents to pray that, but he was telling me the story. You know, I, I could never figure that out. Man, one day they were my friend, and the next day they just weren't. He came back home, and they said that he lived in a little place in the back. It was almost an underground-type shelter with no kitchen, just a bed. And he stayed there for a while, and then he left again. And they asked me, what was, what's the problem? And I said, because you didn't change. You were the same parents you were before, same overprotective that you were before, and that's tough to say to people. But you didn't change. I, I told you, I said, you pray this hedge of thorns, you're going to have to repent yourself. And he never came back completely because they didn't prepare for that coming home. But lastly, I would say, while you're doing this, and this is the most important thing I can share with you today, you need to do so, pray with fervency, passion. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. According to James, Psalm 18.6, it says this, In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God for help. He heard my voice in his temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. In Exodus 2, it says, Now it came about in the course of those many days that the king of Egypt died, and the sons of Israel sighed because of their bondage, and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their bondage rose up to God. So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and saw the sons of Israel and took notice of them, crying out to God, God, I'm desperate. <clears throat> God, I just, I, I open up my heart to you, God, and God, I want it so bad. What does crying out say to, what does things like crying out and fasting say to God? You cried the more. You cried it more, 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 more. God, I want it so bad. It tests the humility of the human heart, but it also tests the desires. Remember what I said about blind Bartimaeus a week, last week, week before that, when I said that he was crying out to God, he was blind, he was, he was holding on to the disciples and crying out to Jesus, Lord, I'm blind, would you restore my sight? Jesus at first did not acknowledge him because the crowd, and the crowd was all around him. They were pulling at him from every direction. And finally, when the disciples said, would you leave the master alone? And he cried the more, it says. He cried louder. He cried more. And Jesus, realizing that his faith was so strong, that he was so desperate, he knew only Jesus could help him. He turned around and he healed the man. How bad do you want it? How much have you cried out? You said, listen, I, I've been burdened for my friend. I've been burdened for my, my son, my daughter. I know you have been. I know you've worried yourself sick. You have. You're a good parent. You, you, you've done all, you feel like you've done all, but have you, have you prayed as much as you've worried? What about fasting? Oh, man, I don't know if I can give up a meal or not. You know, or, or, you know, boy, you get hungry, you get a little sick. I know all that. How bad do you want it? There's something about fasting that says, I'm putting aside 
something that I need in my life in order to seek a greater need, to seek the Lord for an individual that I love so much. What about that? Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 58, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen the bonds of wickedness, to undo the bands of the yoke, and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? The fast that will loosen the bonds of wickedness. And the prayer works. It works. I was knocking on um, doors back in my last church, and I, I give uh, illustrations maybe from my last church rather than this church. If I do it from this church, everybody's looking around and say, ooh, wonder who that was, you know. So and after being here 23 years, um, believe me, when I retire and become interim pastor, I've got a lot of stories to tell. No, I'm just kidding. But in this story, great story, I was teaching these um, two individuals that were with me how to go about sharing their faith. So we were knocking on doors and uh, knocked on the door. Lady answered the door and really kind of put us off. Wasn't a good visit at all right at the door. She looked irritated. And I only had three times that ever's happened in my life. And I had these two people with me. I said, well, we, we can't quit there. So we went to the next house. I think it was vacant. We went to the next house, knocked on the door, and I said, God, we don't even have to get in the door. We just help her to be pleasant, you know, end on a good note. Knocked on the door, and I, I told her who I was. And she looked at me really strange. I've never seen a look like this going door to door, ever, ever. And she looked at me like, come on in. So we went in. And I began to explain to her a little about, about church and why we were there, why we were just uh, sharing Christ. And, and she says, stop right there. And she says, I want you to know that something really weird is happening here. I said, what's that? And she said, when, you just have to understand, I have a, really a fatal disease. I'm 25 years old and I shouldn't be alive today. I have breathing problems, uh, fluid in my lungs all the time. But I've gotten my education, I have a really good job, and I've prided myself on being such a really good employee. I've never, I never skip work. But she said, you know, last night I got drunk again, and I woke up this morning and thought to myself, why am I wasting my life? What am I doing? Is there anything else out there? She said, I've never been to church in my life. I've only heard about God. And she said, I've been praying all day. I said, God, if you're out there, send someone to my door before I go to sleep tonight to tell me about you. And here you are knocking on my door. Her name was Susan. Had a chance to share Christ with her that night. A month later, she prayed to receive Christ in our church. See, she was crying out to God. God, I'm at the end of my rope. I just can't go any further. God, would you help me? Would you help me? What about you today? You say, oh, we've been praying. Remember the story about Daniel and praying? And, and God says, look, 21 days ago, the very first time you started praying, I answered your prayer, but the angel came to answer your prayer, and a demon stopped her. It's spiritual warfare going on. So what about you? How bad do you want it? Are, are you willing to cry out to God? Are you willing to fast? I tell you what, I'll tell you what I challenged the first service here. I'll fast with you.
how fast would you? This is too important. If you would take uh, your card, I got one here somewhere, you would take your card today, put your name on it, flip it on the other side, put the name of the person you want prayed for, that'll be my prayer list this week. I will join you in fasting and praying for your friend, for your son, for your daughter. And we will pray in great spiritual warfare that God would do a great work and draw them, draw them to himself the way he did the prodigal son in our story. Would you do that? Could you do that? Well, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, well, how in the world can I expect somebody else to come back when I'm not there myself? Maybe you're not even a Christian today. And you think, well, wow, you know, when I think about it, Pastor, nobody's praying for my friend. Nobody's praying for my son, my daughter, my dad, my mom. Nobody's praying for them, I guess, because it'd be up to me, and I can't pray because I don't have that relationship with God. Jesus died on the cross for me, and he rose again on the third day, and I'm contemplating all this, but I've never surrendered my life to him. Why don't you do that today with heads bowed and eyes closed? Right now, if that's the prayer of your heart, you're willing to say to Jesus, Lord, I want you to come into my heart. I want you to make the difference in my life. Would you pray this prayer with me right now, silently, as I pray aloud? It goes like this. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for going to the cross and dying there for my sins. I open up the door of my heart. I ask you to come in. I repent of my sin of trying to be free, free from you. Lord, I pray that you'd make me at home in your heart. In Jesus' name. Now, with heads bowed and eyes closed, with, well, in fact, just look this way just a moment. Here's what I want you to do before we sing. You pray to receive Christ. It's a place on the back. It says, my decision today. And the very first thing, I have decided to surrender my life to Christ and begin a personal relationship with him. If you prayed that prayer with me, put a little check in that box. Now, we're going to have an invitation in just a moment. And we're going to ask you to bring this card with you if you'd like to talk to someone this morning, a real-life person. But if not, we'll try to do everything we can to make sure you get the literature you need in order to grow in Christ just by putting a check in that box in your name and some kind of information on the front. Also, there are people here that need to be praying for somebody, be crying out to God, and you want me to join you. Well, why don't you join my prayer list this week? I'll fast and pray with you. You put their name on the card, and we'll see what God wants to do. Put their name on the card. Now, we're going to have an invitation. The band's going to sing for us here. I want us to all stand together. I want you to pray for those around you. So let's stand together right now, and let's heads bowed, eyes closed. Now, listen, the altar is open, and you're willing to say this morning, I'm coming to the altar to pray for someone I love that needs to come to Christ or needs to come back to the Lord. You say, well, I'm not much at altar stuff. How bad do you want it? Well, I might get embarrassed. You know, I'm embarrassed. How badly do you want it? You come today. You cry out in your heart to the Lord for that person that you're praying for. If you want to come and make a profession of faith, you want to follow the Lord in believer's baptism, you want to know something more about the Christian life, these two gentlemen right here are standing here waiting for you. As I pray and as we sing, heads bowed, eyes closed, right now, you come.